The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall, not lie, down, you shall lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Connell, and it's great to be here again. Once again, my name is Lee Eric Fesco, Director of Discipleship for the three campuses. It's a real treat to be here with you once again, and uh, something you should know about me is that growing up, uh, I was an odd-looking kid. Uh, I got my fair share of teasings just by way of example. My hair grew not long, but tall. So again, I, I got all kinds of teasing. I had an older brother, and at the time in grade school, we had a job uh, where we were paper boys. Uh, we delivered the San Mateo Times five days a week, and uh, we had to go door to door, also collecting those subscription fees, too. That was part of the job. That was a, a fun part. There was one instance in particular where my brother rang the bell. An older lady answered the door. She looked like she could be someone's grandma. And she said to my brother, Oh, how nice. It's the paper boy. And then she looked at me and said, And who are you? You must be the younger sister. I was so stunned, I don't think I even corrected her. I just said, yes, ma'am, I'm the sister. I know it was a little odd-looking, but did I really look like a girl? She thought I looked like a girl. I was so stunned. There was another instance right around the same time in my life where, where someone said something to me that more than stunned me. It, it hurt. It straight up hurt. I was riding my bike with a few of my friends, and we were headed to the downtown part of where we lived, and it was a stranger. I'd never seen this person before. I didn't know him from anyone. I just knew he was older than me, and I imagined him to be a grown-up, someone maybe who would know better. And as we were nearing him, we were going slow enough where I could hear what he said, and he was looking right at me as he said it. And he looked at me and said, oh, wow, what an ugly-looking kid. I went home, and I told my mom what had happened. I was in tears. She did her best to console me, to console me telling me only something a mother would say. Oh, he was probably just jealous of your handsome looks. 
Thanks, Mom. It was this total stranger. I didn't know him. He was a grown-up, so I thought, and it hurt. Why, why do we get hurt by what people think of us? Why do we get hurt by the way people define us, how the world might define us? I think we get hurt because on some level, we fear what they say might be true. What if it's true? What if my worst insecurities that I have are true? What if the things that people say about me are true? I have one question for you today, just one question. Who are you? Who are you? We're in a sermon series entitled Isaiah, Following God in a Difficult World, an an identity. It's a difficult topic. It's, It's one of those topics that make the world that much more difficult, how people identify us, and sometimes even worse, how we identify ourselves. Identity is a trending topic right now, and there are all kinds of answers out there. So who do we listen to? Who do we listen to? Isaiah tells us about a servant, and this is good news. Because for most of the book of Isaiah, we're seeing words of judgment from Isaiah. The people of God had difficulty, to say the least, being faithful to God. There's a theme that's repeated throughout the Old Testament, and it's reiterated to God's people time and time again. The people of God were given an identity. They were told, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You will be my people. Well, God's people had a good bit of difficulty with their identity. They were constantly looking over at the neighboring uh, kingdoms and saying, hey, what's your God about? What does he, she, or they do? And, And maybe, hey, maybe we can incorporate them with the worship of our God. Well, God wasn't having that. No, you've forgotten your identity. So throughout most of Isaiah, in fact, right from the get-go, when Isaiah was called by God to preach, he told him right out of the gate, Isaiah, you're going to be the least popular preacher there ever was. No one is going to listen to you. No one. They're a stiff-necked people, and, and they will not listen. Preach to them my words of truth, which will serve as words of judgment to them. Now, there's something you should know about God and his, his manner of discipline. It's always carried out with a restorative view in mind. In fact, his plan for the whole world is being carried out with a restorative view in mind. So right around chapter 39 and 40, Isaiah's tone changes from confrontation to assurance, okay? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And then here in the final chapters of Isaiah, he prophesies about a person he identifies as the servant of the Lord, and this servant is going to be the one who would come into the world and bring salvation. Who is this mysterious servant that Isaiah is prophesying about? Who is a servant who finally, once and for all, will bring deliverance to God's people? Well, the writers of the New Testament tell us that it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who will save God's people. Jesus is the one who will bring deliverance and restore his people's identity. When Connell read the scripture for us a bit ago, he was telling us Isaiah's description of the servant who is Jesus. And we can break this passage down into three sections. The first two sections tell us something about Jesus, who he is, unique features about the servant who was to come. And if we can understand these two features about Jesus in this passage, it will help unlock our questions about identity. It will help us understand the one question we're trying to answer today. Who are you? Who are you? Let me read for you once again verse 4 from our scripture passage today. This is Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Isaiah is describing for us the servant of the Lord, and, and and it's put in first person, so it's just as if Jesus was talking himself, and this is what he says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. 
What is Isaiah describing here? He's presenting to us the servant as a well-taught disciple, a student, a good student, a scholar who has total devotion to the Word of God. I have two sons, and my older son, his name is Jack. He's 13 years old, and Jack is what I would describe as an Apple products enthusiast. He loves all things Apple. He loves MacBooks, iPods, iPads, iPhones, AirPods, Apple Watches, and Apple TV, Apple Pencil too. He loves all of it. In fact, if you show him your iPhone, he can tell you what kind it is and probably what kind of chip and processor are inside of it, too, just by looking at it. Pretty good for a 13-year-old. He loves all things Apple. The other thing that Jack likes besides Apple is Taco Bell. He's 13 years old. He loves Taco Bell. At any given moment, if you were to ask Jack, hey, where would you like to eat? How about Taco Bell? Every single time, that's his answer. Okay? In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, he and I were on a father-son trip, and we went to Chicago. And you know Chicago. Chicago has all kinds of great food. Deep dish pizza, right? Chicago-style hot dogs. Garrett's popcorn. Hey, Dad, can our next meal come from Taco Bell? He said on more than one occasion. And I said, no, because I'm a mean dad. Right? Point being, if you engage in a conversation with Jack, 90% of the time, chances are it'll be something related to Apple. When you bump into, your, into Jack, Apple knowledge just falls out, along with a request to take him to the drive-thru of Taco Bell. That's my boy. What made Jesus a well-taught disciple, a scholar? What, what it means to be a disciple of God is that you open your eyes and your ears to the Word of God. The servant of the Lord is immersed in the Scripture. What we read in the gospel accounts is that when people engage Jesus in a conversation, it seems like 90% of the time he responded with and about Scripture. When you bumped into Jesus, the Scripture would just fall out, it seemed. When Satan tempted in the wilderness, his response? It is written. It is written. It is written. When the Pharisees came after him and tried to press him and tried to accuse him, what was his response? How did he respond? With Scripture. It is written. The Scriptures would just fall out. Every action of his was guided and informed by the scriptures. He took no action that ran contrary to the word of God. By way of example, tracking back a little bit in the scriptures, there's a passage in Exodus 3 where God reveals uh, reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and God tells Moses, if I heard the cry of my people and I want you to take them out of Egypt to no longer serve Pharaoh, that they may instead serve me, that they instead may worship me. And Moses said, that's a great plan, Lord. But when I go back to your people to tell them this is what we're going to do, who should I say it is that sent me to do this? And God answers, tell them I sent you, the God of your fathers. No, no, no. Who do I tell them sent me? Your name. What is your name, Lord? What should I tell them your name is? Who are you? What What is your identity? And it's here that God reveals to Moses his holy name. And our Bibles render that name as, I am who I am. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you, the eternal one, the self-existent one, the one with no beginning and no end, the one who always is and always was. I am who I am. Now, an interesting side note of that holy name of God, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they rendered that I am who I am as ego imi. Ego Now, why is that important? Because if we fast forward all the way to the New Testament, 
in the book of John, and we look at those instances where Jesus made any of his I am statements, like I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, or before Abraham was, I am. In each of those instances where he makes those I am statements, it's rendered as ego imi, okay? Which was not common if you're making a general I am statement. If you're saying I'm hungry, I am full, I am, I am tired, you wouldn't say ego imi, okay? Do you see what this means? Whenever Jesus said one of those I am statements, he was connecting a thread all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. Whenever he made those I am statements, he was declaring his divinity. He was declaring his identity. He was declaring his union with the God eternal. Now, why do I tell you all this? I tell you this because of John 18. Do you know what I love about John 18? What I love about John 18 is that you could read this passage a hundred times and and miss the drama that's unfolding here. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be betrayed by Judas and and arrested by officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. They came with lanterns, torches, and, and clubs. They came looking for a fight. When Jesus sees them approaching, he says, whom do you seek? And they said, we came for Jesus of Nazareth. And do you know what he replied with? Ego imi. We're told that when he said that, when he said those words, once again declaring his divinity, they drew back and fell to the ground. When he said that, he literally blew them off their feet. It's as if he pulled back that layer of humanity that veiled his deity just the ever slightest bit enough to blow them off their feet. In that moment, do you see what's happening there? He has all the power in the world. He could summon every angel of heaven to come down and obliterate the officers that showed up with their measly clubs and torches. He could have done that. He could have wiped them out all right there on the spot, but instead, do you know what he did? He stretched out his hands so that they would bind him up and lead him away. But before he did that, after Peter's futile attempt to fight back, Jesus said, arrest me, let them go. Do you know why he said that? to fulfill the scriptures, because that's what the scriptures guided him to do. In Matthew's account in chapter 26, Jesus tells his disciples, no, put away your swords, guys. All this has taken place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He was guided by the scriptures every single day, every waking minute, every single second, every single action of his ministry was guided by the scriptures. Did he have the right, the power, and the authority, and the opportunity to destroy those who came to arrest him? Without question. This is what the passage showed us, but instead, his every action, his every thought, the servant of the Lord is continually guided by the scriptures. He was a student of the scriptures. He was a scholar of of God's word who has given himself total devotion to it. So what does this mean for you and me? How does this help our answer, answer our question for today, who are you? Who am I? If Jesus Christ, the servant Isaiah is telling us about here, if Jesus is every thought, every action was guided and informed by Scripture, he didn't make it a move unless it was accord with Scripture because he was a disciple of it, what does that mean for you and me? Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? People ask that all the time. What's God's will for my life? Would you like to know what God's will for your life is? Would you like me to tell you? I will tell you. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It says this, very plainly, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's it. That's it. That's, that's the will of God for your life. We can end now. We can go home. Where's the band? Bring them in. No, well, wait a minute. Before the band comes out, let's, let's review what sanctification is, okay? 
What is sanctification? It's the process whereby you and I are made to be like Christ more and more. A little bit more each and every day, the Holy Spirit is molding you into the image and the character of Christ. This is what he's doing. He's never not doing this to you, in fact. This is his will for you. He won't be thwarted. Philippians 1, 6 tells us, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if this is his objective for you to make you more and more like his son, do you see what this means? Your identity is being conformed to his. So you should be a student of the word. Your actions, every last one of them, should be guided and informed by scripture. Now, I know that sounds a little cliche, How do we discover our identity? Well, we have to read our Bibles. Is that really the best answer you've got? That's the best answer I've got because that is the best answer. Do you see and hear all the voices in society today on social media from your friends and your family, all the voices competing for your attention? They're competing for your attention. They're trying to shape your identity whether you like it or not. They're competing for your attention. They're trying to shape your identity with information that may or may not be true. So how do you counter that? How do you how do you stabilize your heart? How do you stabilize your mind? When, when we take the Word of God and put that into our heads and put that into our hearts, we're putting, ourselves, we're putting into ourselves the only thing in this world that we know is true, the only thing in this world that won't misguide us, the only thing in this world that, that is sure to give us peace. When the Word of God is placed inside you, it displaces all those other things that are misleading you. This is why Jesus pressed into the Word. This is why he was such a student of the Word because it will not misguide, it will only give us truth. And there's nothing else in the world like it. But how do I do it? Where do I start? You just start. You just got to start reading it. Open it up as it says in our scripture passage today, morning by morning. Read it daily. Put it in your heart and your mind. There are plenty of Bible reading plans out there that will take you through the Bible in a year, or if that's too fast, you can even slow that pace down and get through it in two years, okay? It's only about 15 to 20 minutes a day to get through the whole Bible in a year, the entire Bible. Just start doing that. Do you like podcasts? How many people in here like podcasts? You like podcasts? I love a good podcast. I love all the true crime podcasts. I've, I've heard them all, okay? I've listened. It's another way I realize that I'm getting old. It used to be I'd get into my car, I'd roll the windows down, turn the music up as loud as it go with my hair on fire, I'd go down the street, right? Now my windows are up more and more, and I'm listening to people on the radio talk, or people on the podcast talk. It's just my dad. My dad used to say, when I would get in his car when I was young, I would turn on his radio, and it's some guy named Paul Harvey saying, and now you know the rest of the story. How boring. Now that's me. That's what I do now. <laughs> Turned into my dad. I listen to people talking when I get into my car. Do you know that there's a podcast of a reader that literally reads the Bible to you word for word? That's all it is. That's all it is. Someone reading the Bible to you. You can subscribe to it, and it's delivered to you every day. You can have someone read you the Bible. You can follow along. It's true. What a time to be alive. The point is, if we're going to understand who we are, if we have any hope of cutting through the noise, it's going to have to be as a result of us having our eyes and ears for God's Word. Put, put the Word of God in your heart and mind so that when you're bumped, when you're pushed, when you're shoved, the Word of God falls out of you. It guides you and informs you. So the first thing our passage tells us is that Jesus was a scholar. He was a disciple of the Word. He was guided by the Word. He lived and died by the Word, which leads us to the second thing we see in our passage from Isaiah, and that is a servant of the Lord, that's Jesus, is a suffering servant. Isaiah is telling us that that Christ's learning and his suffering went hand in hand. Christ's learning and his suffering went hand in hand. As Isaiah describes Jesus as a learner and a follower of the word, then he moves right into this, verse 5. 
the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's not just that Jesus suffered. As our passage in John showed us, he willingly suffered. He had the power and the authority right then and there to stop it, right, and call down every angel, but he willingly suffered. It wasn't just a byproduct of who he was, it was part of his identity. He suffered as a part of his learning. Hebrews 5.8 tells us, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I know that can be a tough pill to swallow. God's prescription for us is not that we avoid pain, but like the servant of the Lord, the suffering is a part of the learning experience for us. It's baked into our sanctification. It's, it's forming our identity. My 11-year-old son, my younger son, Logan, he just recently had an epiphany about this. We went for a bike ride, and we decided to ride to a, a park nearby, and conveniently for us, the ride to the park was almost entirely downhill. We hardly had to pedal. And once we got on the main road, it was just a straight shot down, and we got all the way to the park, and we got there, we stopped, we regrouped, and I looked at him, and I said, that was easy. And he replied back to me, yeah, I wish everything was downhill all the time. Now, this is a parenting moment. So I told him, well, if you just went downhill, you could never go back to the place you were. You could never go home. He told me, well, you'd just set up a new home where you were, being outwitted by a fifth grader. Now, at this point, I thought, well, I could argue with him. I could point out how impractical that is, and how would you get your stuff from the old house to the new house? You'd have to hire a mover who was uphill from your house to bring it downhill to your new house. And then when it came time for closing on the new house, you'd have to go, because you only go downhill, you go downhill to the closing office, and then once you close on your house, guess what? Your, old ha- your house is uphill now. You've got to sell that house and now move down. It's just impractical. You can't do this. You can't do this, Logan. But instead of explaining all that to him, I said, yeah, you're right. Parenting moment fail. But then, all on his own, he said this, if everything was only downhill, then there wouldn't be any challenges and nothing would be gained. And before I could tell him what a profound thought that was, he told me, hey, I just came up with something really wise. It is really wise and it is really biblical too. There's something to be learned from the uphill. There's something to be gained from the struggle. In, in Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus was going to begin his journey to Jerusalem, and he sent some messengers on ahead of him to find a place to stay in a Samaritan village, which was on the way to Jerusalem. And once those Samaritan villagers heard that Jesus was going to be passing through town and just, just passing through town to get to Jerusalem, they said, you can't stay here. You're not going to stay here. Go stay somewhere else if you're on your way to Jerusalem. And when James and John heard about this, they were furious. And they, they, they said, but this is what they basically said, Jesus, do you think you should throw a fireball down from heaven and torch them for saying that? Jesus' response to that, he rebuked them. Why did he rebuke them? Because there's something gained here. The suffering is a necessary part of the learning. There's something to be gained in the rejection. As Isaiah tells us how the servant offers up his back, he doesn't turn his face from those who spit upon him. Why? Why does he do that? What's to be gained by taking the mocking and the spitting? He tells us in verse 7 and following, but the Lord God helps me. Though there's mocking, though there's spitting, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? 
Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. What's he describing here? He's describing the servant who knows his identity, his calling, and it doesn't matter what the accusations are. It doesn't matter what the insults are. Why? Because he who vindicates me is near. His place with the Father is so secure, his understanding of his purpose and plan is so firmly set that any opposition, any mocking, or any spitting can't steer him elsewhere. God is my vindication. God is my identity. I'll not be dissuaded. Dissuaded from what? Where was he headed? What was he doing? Though they mocked him, though they spat upon his face, his face was like a flint, a stone that that won't be moved, he pressed on. For what? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's you. That's you. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew his identity, he knew his purpose, and he knew that he would be vindicated so that you would be vindicated. So who are you? What's your identity? You are being made to be like Christ. You are being made to be like the servant. You are someone who has been vindicated by God Almighty. That's who you are. And you are following in the footsteps of the servant of the Lord. He was vindicated so that you would be vindicated. The legal standing that was placed on him would be placed on you. And his identity is becoming yours. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul rattles off a lot of labels. Thief, Greedy, drunkard, idolater, swindler, sexually immoral. Paul, Paul isn't trying to compile an exhaustive list here. It could be any number of things he lists here. The church at Corinth, whom he's writing to, got themselves into all kinds of stuff. And Paul goes on to tell us that people with these identities will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, 1 Corinthians six eleven, And such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were vindicated. In other words, you have a new identity. Those other labels don't define you anymore. Even if you still find yourself haunted by the former things, even if someone reminds you of your former labels, your insecurities, the things you fear are, are, are true about yourself, you have a new identity now. This is who you are and nothing on this earth or anywhere else can change that. What labels have been placed on you? What labels have you placed on yourself? Failure? Addict? Uneducated? Unqualified? Unattractive? Slut? Ugly? Loser? Unlovable? Unwanted? Irredeemable? Unforgivable? And such were some of you. But you have a new identity. This is something I found myself reminding my children all the time, and when someone says something to them that hurts them, this is something I have to tell them. And I have to tell myself this all the time, too. I've had to preach this sermon to myself more times than I care to admit. Whatever they say to you, whatever they call you or label you, they don't get to decide that. Your heavenly Father gets to decide that. And this is what He has called you. Child of God. Co-heir with Christ. Justified, buried, raised, and alive with Christ. Chosen, loved, set apart, born again. God's own possession, anointed, redeemed, friend of Christ, new creation, 
declared righteous, God's workmanship, rescued, adopted, forgiven. I could go on. I could keep doing it. I could do this all day. These are your new labels. This is who you are. This is your identity. The last two verses in our passage today call us to action. It calls us to follow the lead of the servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. As we come to this table this morning, we're making a declaration. We're making a declaration that this is where our hope resides. This is where our identity lies in the finished, irreversible work of the servant of the Lord that has been applied to you. Please pray with me.